I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the United States Australia Defense Ministerial, we have none other than our Australia chair here at CSIS, Dr. Charles Adele. Charlie, welcome. Thanks so much for having me on, Andrew. It's been a big week here. It's been a really big week, and I can't open the newspaper without seeing your name attached to what is called Osman, the annual Australia-U.S. ministerial, which just took place in D.C. So can you tell me why this is so important, why this is such a big deal? Yeah, absolutely. Look, Osman is the ministerial meeting that happens once a year, right, between our Secretary of State and Defense and their Minister of Foreign Affairs and Defense. Happens once a year. It's our turn. We decided we're hosting it here. But the reason this is a big deal is because there's been so much change and churn in the relationship since the last time they met. First of all, you have a new cast of characters. There was an election in Australia. Labor is now the government, first time in a decade. Both Penny Wong, their foreign minister, and Richard Marles have met with their American counterparts, but this is the first time they sat down, the four of them, to actually talk about the agenda of what the alliance looks like moving forward. You know, we've had a war in Ukraine. We've had lots of thinking about what this means for munitions, production, defense capabilities, but also what this might mean for the Indo-Pacific when we look at Taiwan. So minds are really kind of tracking on just how important this alliance is. And of course, the last time that they met as a group, the ministers at least, they had literally launched AUKUS like a day or two beforehand. So now we are well underway in efforts. We're nearing the end of an 18-month government study. And so while they're talking about the full suite of things that we do together on the diplomatic front, on climate change with defense, they're also helping to nudge forward AUKUS as well. So a lot on the agenda. So are they nudging forward AUKUS? I mean, this is something that happened months ago to great fanfare because the United States and Australia and the UK cut France out of the deal. And it's a very, very important security deal for us in the Pacific. So where does that stand? And did anything get moved forward with Osman? Yeah, things have moved forward a little bit because while Osman happened on Tuesday, today we actually had a defense minister's meeting of AUKUS. Ben Wallace flew over from the UK to meet with Lloyd Austin and Richard Marles. They just released the announcement of their meeting today. And I I don't want to ruin the surprise. They didn't say much in the announcement. But that's consistent with more or less what they've said all along, which is we need to understand the optimal pathway forward for this. We're not going to say anything until we've actually figured it out. And then come March, we're going to make sure that we have a full push forward. So what they did do, though, uh, which I think was interesting, is when Richard Marles was in town, their deputy prime minister, who doubles as the defense minister, he was up in Rhode Island, too, because he was taking a look at electric boat, looking at the production lines of how they produce the submarines. He also, I think, was talking with Lloyd Austin, not only about submarines, but the full suite of advanced capabilities that we have. There were some interesting questions that came up in the presser about the latest B-21 that we've just released. But what they all did was consistently, I think, face up to the fact that there's been great progress made, but we don't yet have the end results. We're not going to prejudge them. And most importantly, we're going to keep the press on to make sure that we can figure out these really complicated issues of export controls, which is really the nub of the issue on moving things forward. So, Charlie, 
you know, this might be a silly question, but Australia has really become important to the United States. It's one of our most important allies. Can you summarize why it's so important to us and what does an alliance with them offer the United States? Absolutely. And it's not a silly question at all. You know, I used to joke, Andrew, that when we were living in Australia, the number one, probably the number one, two, and three question that I would get asked is like, hey, mate, um, how important are we? And I would say, that's a ridiculous question. It's not like we keep a secret list in a drawer somewhere that rank orders our allies. But if we did, you're moving up. And the reason for that, of course, is the United States, I think, is facing a, a moment where our adversaries have gotten much stronger. We no longer have the ability to deal with everything on our own. And the recognition, I think, and this is a bipartisan recognition, is that the way that we're going to plug that gap is to make sure that our allies and partners are right there alongside us, and sometimes even leading the charge. And the reason that Australia has become so important is because when we look down the list of trusted allies and partners, yep, they're at the top of the list. But when we think about partners who are not only capable, but willing to do more, they really are kind of front of line, head of class in so many ways. So when we think about kind of plussing up, helping to give more power, more capabilities to our allies who are willing to use it, that's why Australia has become so important here. Charlie, they're becoming more and more important Australia has been with us in every recent war and past war. What is the what is the future of the alliance as you see it? It's 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 a great question. You know, on the one hand, you can say that the future of the alliance is here, right? AUKUS is a totally new renovation of the alliance. It's it's a different way that we think about the types of technologies that we're going to share with our closest allies. But I actually think it's a lot broader than that because What we're trying to do is think about how we move the alliance from the defense and security realm into almost every realm of endeavor. I think very noticeably with a center-left government that clearly has put climate change at the top of its last, very much aligned with the Biden administration, they notably carved out that now climate change and addressing it, no less the energy transition, is going to be a pillar of the alliance moving forward thinking about how they can work with us to enhance the prosperity when we have no trade policy of Southeast Asia and of the Pacific, pushing that along and working hand in glove with that. As we say, it's not just security anymore. One of the most important things that we're thinking about in the context of making sure that we're all resilient and resilient against Chinese coercion is the fact that when we talk about friend shoring more trusted supply chains, Australia and the U.S. have some natural synergies together. So there's been a ton of work that's been done on the critical minerals, rare earths that's been done together. So the I guess the way that I'm trying to answer your question in a diffuse way, Andrew, is to simply say that the future of the alliance is actually that we're spreading it out across almost every field of endeavor and taking it outside the defense and security space to make sure that our efforts are really matched together much more closely and synced as well. That's fascinating. Along those lines, I wanted to ask you about what happened in October of 2022, where the Australians and the Japanese issued a new joint declaration on security cooperation. Recently, uh, there's been a more shared focus 
on China and strengthening foreign as well as defense policy. How is this new joint declaration different from the original one, which was 2007? And how can we expect to see these two countries, as well as the United States, respond to Chinese security challenges? I mean, we just saw the Chinese president say that this is a new era in China, right? Xi Jinping said it's a new era in China, and that era is going to be focused on technology and security. So that has to provoke something in us and our allies, doesn't it? Absolutely, it does. And look, I think you're really right to point to what's been going on, not only with Australia, but with Japan and with Australia and Japan. And so it's been quite interesting that in you talked about October, but I would kind of rewind the clock to one of the major initiatives that we saw in January of this past year is the Australians and the Japanese signed a reciprocal access agreement, right, which allowed both of their militaries to go into train and resupply each other. What happened in October, what you were referring to, is Prime Minister Kishida flew out to Perth on the very western tip of Western Australia, met with Albanese and talked about how they have to do much more in the defense realm, in cooperating on supply chains, in energy, in tech. But the most interesting part of that is if you look at the language that they released in this updated security guidelines, it's almost almost a cut and paste job of the ANZUS Treaty, uh, the formal alliance linking the United States and Australia from 1951. That was done very purposefully. It's not a formal alliance between Japan and Australia, but the language that we're talking about, about consultations, about working together, about contingencies and consulting each other, looks an awful lot like what the US-Australian alliance looks like. So what we're really seeing is an acceleration of how Japan and how Australia are working super closely with their closest democratic partners here. And by the way, that has the side benefit of being the strongest military presences that are like-minded in the region. Well, so the one that's missing from that equation is probably Korea, isn't it? It is. And is that next on the agenda? It is. One of the things that uh, you haven't let me brag about yet is this terrific report that we put out. And I say brag about this because we showcased 22 leading experts who wrote 18 essays and had more than 70 recommendations for how the U.S.-Australian alliance can cooperate together moving forward. Look, we, we did it in advance of Osman, hopefully to be helpful in kind of coming up with what think tanks do, right? Pushing forward the policy dialogue. Maybe some useful suggestions for Osman, because we seeded it to both governments in advance. But really, what I wanted to do was set the 10 poles out a little bit further and make it a little bit more ambitious and think about where we could go next, as you said. And so on the Korean one, I had Victor Cha and uh, Seyun Ji write a terrific essay. And I say terrific because they've really laid out an entire agenda for what incorporating South Korea into the fledgling network that we see developing between the US and Australia and Japan. And the best part of this is that with a new administration in Seoul, the moment is really, I think, ripe for this. They just released an Indo-Pacific strategy. Professor Yoon has said that he wants to become much more aligned and much more outward looking and not just focused on security issues within the Korean Peninsula. So there's a lot of churn here and a lot of, I, I think it's a ripe moment for expansion of who's working with whom out here. I want to go back to AUKUS for a minute. Following the meeting, the Osman meeting, DOD released an AUKUS defense ministerial joint statement. 
What do you think the current state of play is for AUKUS and what are the remaining challenges and barriers to make AUKUS a true success? Up front, I don't mean to disappoint you, Andrew, but like, who knows? Because it's a very secret series of consultations. But the the truth of the matter is, uh, to steal a phrase here, (laughs) that we actually do know a bit, right? Uh, Because they've been putting out regular statements. It started just with the submarines. Quickly thereafter, we got Pillar 2, which was advanced capabilities, and it moved from four advanced capabilities to eight advanced capabilities. You know, I'm not going to get down in the weeds for you here. We'll talk about that another time. But we are seeing progress here. Uh, I think they've gotten their, you know, health check from the IAEA thus far to make sure that they're fully compliant with the NPT, with the uh, Non-Proliferation Treaty. The main thing, as they figure out the optimal pathway forward for who's going to build, who's going to train, where are they going to find that skilled labor, who's going to pay for it, right? These are all the big questions here. And frankly, like, it's not like we're going to have all these answers served up on a platter necessarily come March, because this is going to take two, three, four decades. It's going to involve governments of every stripe in the UK and Australia and the US as we pursue this endeavor. But the main issue here, and I talked about this earlier, the main obstacle is we know that we want to do it. But we have an antiquated export control regime that was designed for the Cold War to stop others from getting some of the key technologies that we had. Made total sense then, doesn't make sense when we're trying to add to the capabilities of our closest and most trusted allies. And again, I would just point to the fact that Jim Caruso, who's a senior advisor with us, works with me here in the Australia chair, just authored a piece that we put out at CSIS earlier today, which was Jim, who was the charge in Canberra and four former U.S. ambassadors to Australia, two Republicans, two Democrats, making this very point, that unless there's reform of ITAR, that's the export control regime that State Department controls, AUKUS looks really good on paper, but probably doesn't actually work in practice. So that's the main obstacle that folks are working on right now. That's a big obstacle, isn't it? It's a huge obstacle. And one of the hugest parts of this huge obstacle is export controls are quite complicated. There are lots of people who touch it and lots of different people who have ownership over this, starting with State Department, but also within the Pentagon and, of course, within the services uh, themselves. So there are a lot of ideas flowing around there about what it might take to change not only how we do export controls specifically for AUKUS, but the larger challenge I think that we're dealing with here is Because this is a regime that was developed during the Cold War to say no and stop the export of certain key technologies, there's not a silver bullet, I don't think, for fixing this because we're trying to change the culture of how we think about this with our closest allies. And having a cultural change and a bureaucratic mind shift is quite challenging to do. So there are a lot of different ways that I think folks are trying to nudge this forward to make sure that it actually works. And the other agency involved in this, of course, is Department of Commerce, correct? On export controls, they have a role to play here, too. But this is something that on the export controls, specifically of arms, generally resides within State Department. So the technology is really at issue now because we're clearly saying these are our closest allies. Of course, they're part of the five eyes, but we're still a little nervous about sharing certain technologies. Well, you know, I think I wouldn't say nervous. I I think uh, I would say that people want to be careful about how we do this. We've only done this once before with nuclear propulsion technology. The U.S. Navy and our naval nuclear reactors 
has a hundred percent safety record. And they're very proud of that. And then we want to make really sure that we continue this. So we don't want to get this wrong. It's important that we have all the necessary controls in place. That said, we're trying to figure out, and we know that we have the green light from the president on this, that this is a priority. That at this point, given the strategic situation that we all face, we want allies who are more capable and who are sharing our most advanced technologies with us. I think you know, AUKUS has been described in a lot of different ways. The description I like most is that it's a technological accelerator for Australia and for Britain and the U.S., frankly, when we kind of share our best practices and our R&D as well. What's ahead for the alliance? Where do we want it to go? Uh, well, one, we want to figure out all these issues we were just talking about, right? We have a big year in front of us because if all the announcements came last year, if the Osman statement that came out Tuesday... Uh, had a lot of new things in there, including like more U.S. force posture in Northern Australia, more prepositioning of munitions, of fuel, good announcements. Now we actually need to see them start to happen there. But apart from that, if we think about the calendar, Andrew, coming up, March is around the corner. March will get simultaneously the AUKUS results about how they're going to proceed. Simultaneously, the Australian government is undertaking their own defense strategic review, which is much larger in scope about what they're going to prioritize, what they're actually going to spend money on, and what they think they say nice to have, not necessary to have. And then, of course, come May, we have the next Quad Leader Summit that's going to be held in Sydney. So there's just an enormous amount of work in front of the leaders here as we move forward. Charlie, you're somebody who spends a lot of time immersed in the U.S.-Australia relationship. What is it that Americans need to know in terms of message between our government and their government and what our long-term intentions are? Most Americans are, are certainly favorable to Australia. Australians, we share a lot of cultural touch points, maybe most importantly, surfing. Absolutely. But... You know, if you're if you're on the National Security Council for the president or if you're at the State Department thinking about these issues, what is it that you want Americans to really take away from all of this? Listening to Penny Wong, their foreign minister earlier today, give a speech where she talked about how vital the U.S. alliance system is, because she said the way that we see it is it's a force multiplier for what you do and an accelerator and enhancer of what it is that we do, even though. We do things differently. Of course, different nations. I think the most important message for Americans to understand is that we have entered a new era, right? The, the post-Cold War era is over, and we're in a much more competitive environment where the competition extends through almost every field of endeavor. And you want friends on your side. We've got them here. But as I said when I was testifying in front of Congress earlier this year, Allies and partners are our comparative advantage. But until we figure out the ways to help enable them to become more capable, in many ways, it looks more like a latent than an actual advantage. So we're in a new era where we're going to be moving away from the previous model of we kind of called the shots. Now we need partners who are more capable and more capable of guiding us and leading us in a lot of parts of the world that are getting very, very fraught and competitive. Charlie. As always, thanks for joining the show. Thanks for helping us understand these really critical issues between the United States and Australia and where this alliance is headed. 
Andrew, it's a pleasure to be on. Thanks so much for making the time. And next time I come on, we're going to discard all the strategy talk and talk a little bit more about which speeches you should be surfing in Australia. <laughs> Let's do that. That will be fun. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 